Hello there to all my fellow 101 History Podcast listeners. I hope all of you have had a great start to 2022, and hard to believe tomorrow, um, being Wednesday, is the halfway point for the first full week of the new year. It's great to be back on the air, and I hope all of you are doing well wherever you may uh, live in the world. But here we are again uh, discussing uh, Harlow Giles Unger's book, Thomas Paine and the Clarion Call for American Independence. When I was on the air last, uh, being at the very end of last year, we talked about um, Paine's essay, The American Crisis. And it was an essay that um, basically was titled with the first sentence being, These are the times that try men's souls. And men's souls were tried, especially knowing that the Continental Army was on its final uh, leg. In other words, it's like that old saying, you know, once you've used up your nine lives, there's no going back. Well, pretty much the Continental Army was on its final life. And, you know, George Washington had to um, reinvent how warfare was fought because, as we all know, the traditional European warfare system revolved around uh, resting in the winter. And then once winter ended, uh, troops would be ready to go come spring when, uh, when it was uh, more ripe um, to engage in um, warfare um, combat. However, George Washington did not have that luxury. Remember, folks, he's facing all kinds of um, uncertainties. Well, for one, desertions are rampant. Nearly 3,000 soldiers, former soldiers now have deserted and are now over on the British side. Enlistments are about ready to expire for those whom are still left fighting in the Continental Army. Washington knows he's got to do something, and with a little help from a double spy agent whom told him exactly where to strike an offensive attack or an offensive launch, I should say, being that of Trenton. Talk about a game changer right there. Had it not been for this double spy agent, who knows if uh, Trenton would have been seized. And of course, that mission um, slogan by Washington was victory or death. Had Washington not chosen to cross the Delaware River. Had Washington chosen not to advance forward, knowing that some of his uh, forces did not make it over because of uh, the weather conditions along the Delaware River. Had Washington decided not to go along, then uh, the cause for what was left of the forces that crossed over, there may not have been um, a victory that um, would have uh, kept the uh, Continental Army alive. So in other words, we were dealing with a morale issue, and as a result of doing the um, of doing the um, unthinkable by defeating the uh, Hessians at Trenton, capturing nearly nine just over nine hundred Hessian soldiers, and killing their uh, colonel, whom was one of the first of twenty-two Hessians to die, Colonel Johann Rall. It wasn't just a victory against the Hessians, it was revenge, considering just how vicious the Hessians had treated um, the Americans, most notably in the New York um, debacles at uh, Kipps Bay, Long Island, Brooklyn Heights, 
It just seemed like nothing could go right in New York. And what do you know, George Washington, with time on his side, but time being fragile in this sense, was able to do the unthinkable, and that was to take what was left of his Continental Army's forces and lead them on a on a mission of victory or death, knowing that everything was, um, that nothing could be left behind. And by defeating the British, or their um, adversaries, uh, the Hessians, there now is, is a um, better um, light, a better hope of light that is at the tunnel, or what we usually think of as at the end of the tunnel, but now there is momentum going into the start of 1777, and as a matter of fact, uh, yesterday, being January the 3rd, marks the uh, 245th um, anniversary of the uh, battle at uh, Princeton that resulted in another American victory. Uh, Washington and his forces were able to conduct a surprise, um, a surprise attack on British forces that pretty much, in the end, forced... Um, Lord uh, forced uh, Cornwallis and his men to pretty much uh, vacate all of western New Jersey, which is now, at the start of 1777, folks, into um, Amer into uh, Continental Army's uh, hands, or a.k.a. Patriot Forces control. So, uh, where do we go from here now in this next uh, segment of uh, Thomas Paine's uh, clarion call for American independence? Well, we are now... Um, we're going to talk more about 1777, but we're also going to be in uh, for some highs and lows. Highs for the better, lows um, and lows that are not just so much for the better, but lows, in my opinion, that were um, unthinkable or, and in some instances, uncalled for. These lows will impact Thomas Paine. The highs will impact him all for the good reasons, but the lows will um, be something to uh, watch out for. So our first uh, leadoff question is actually going to be a two-part question. So let's be prepared for part one. After the Continental Army's victories at Trenton and Princeton from late December 1776 into the start of January 1777, did American forces, along with Congress, halt further operations until winter's official ending? The answer is yes. Okay, now that we've gotten victories that are game changers for um, an increase in momentum, morale has been uh, re uh, restored, um, we all now have something good to feel about. We know that this war is far from over. But now that we've done the unthinkable and now troop enlistments are back on the rise, then yes, we can halt um, operations until uh, spring comes around. But that doesn't mean we just sit around and do nothing. We still have to be, um, we have to prepare though for what lies ahead. But in the meantime, um, American forces along with Congress halt uh, further operations until um, winter's official ending. However, George Washington, though, General George Washington, however, does something that I think is very, very uh, wise. What does he do not long after the uh, victory at uh, Princeton that came at the start of 1777? He issues a proclamation on January 25th of 1777 re requiring those individuals 
whom had defected previously to the British side before the battles at Trenton and Princeton. Most notably, these defections had occurred right after the New York debacle. He is now requiring that those individuals whom had defected over to the British side now reshift their allegiances back to America. In other words, he would like to welcome them back. But what this also means is that they are going to have to um, they're going to have to um, change their loyalties because if they don't change their loyalties, then why should they even be allowed on American soil? You know, it's one thing to have a loyalty to someone or something, but if you switch your loyalties, can that be a good thing as well as a bad thing? Absolutely. At the same time, Washington needs men whom are loyal to the cause, not just to a cause that you're, you know, fighting for your country, that you're fighting for the greater purpose of what lies in stake, not just to defeat the British in a battle, but in the long term, by keeping this war going longer, you will, um, your intentions are, are to hope that over time that England will come to her senses and then realize that, hey, look, it might just be best to surrender. Let our subjects, 3,000 miles across the ocean, figure out for themselves how to go about instituting their own government. They obviously don't want to have anything to do with us. So the bottom line is for George Washington, loyalties are also a, um, it's a commitment, it's a, uh, a psychological thing, but for Washington, there can't be this I, me, myself thing. The, this cause is, is about an us, we, ourselves thing. It, it, it impacts all of us. You know, we're all in this together here, folks. The second part to our opening question is the following, and this um, pertains to Thomas Paine. Where had Mr. Thomas Paine returned to after the battles of Trenton and Princeton? He goes back to Philadelphia where he takes on duties as Secretary to Committee on Foreign Affairs, along with writing additional American crisis essays. Remember after the Battle of uh, Trenton, um, that co many in Congress, especially, they had uh, read his um, essay, The American Crisis, and they were very inspired by it, that pretty much everyone there decides, hey, look, you know, this guy um, is making uh, a lot of sacrifices with his essays by keeping the uh, flames of independence alive, so he deserves to have a, um, a post in the government. Let's move forward now three months after um, the battles of Trenton and Princeton, most notably Princeton, since that was at the start of 1777. But on April the 19th, 1777, Thomas Paine publishes Crisis 3. It's interesting, folks. April 19th, 1777. What happened two years before on April 19th, 1775? Well, I'll tell you here in a second. But... Thomas Paine publishes Crisis 3 on April 19, 1777, in remembrance of the two-year anniversary battles that took place at Lexington and Concord, Massachusetts, along with the outbreak behind America's War for Independence. So basically, you know, uh, Thomas Paine wants to remember those men whom fired the shots around the world at Lexington and Concord. 
but he also wants to uh, go behind the scenes and explain to people in America what America's war for independence really is all about. So Crisis 3 centered upon men's loyalties, including where one stood in the current conflict and the consequences behind the decisions made. Okay? If you are loyal to the cause for um, independence, not only for separation from England, but you are uh, loyal to the cause for where you want to live in a country that is not governed by uh, tyrants 3,000 miles across the ocean, then you need to make sure that your loyal, those loyalties remain in your hearts through the best of times and through the, um, through the darkest of times. I think it's fair to say that the darkest of times definitely uh, showed, uh, came about in the aftermath of the New York debacle uh, battle campaigns where the Continental Army was on the run and they were down to their last um, lifeline. For those who were still loyal to the cause for independence, even in the darkest of moments, their rewards paid off. They didn't give up. They, they didn't even have to be on the battlefield. The bottom line is they were firm believers. And that can be attributed in large part to Thomas Paine's writings, the, like the American Crisis. These are the times that try men's souls. So, hey, you don't have to be a soldier, but you could just be an ordinary person and still be inspired by a piece of work that can lift morale when it's sorely needed. The Crisis 3 essay also focused on advocating loyalty oath. What is a loyalty oath, folks? Well, when you take an oath, like the President of the United States, for example, when he takes the oath, I, I'm just going to use a fictitious name, I, John Smith, do solemnly swear that I will faithfully execute the oath of office to protect, defend, to pr protect, preserve, and defend the Constitution of the United States, so help me God. So taking an oath right there means that you are swearing that you will do everything to the best of your abilities and by doing so that you are committed to uh, representing the greater um, public. That is not just one sector, but all Americans under your uh, watch as commander-in-chief. So why does Thomas Paine's essay, though, focus on advocating loyalty oath? Because, think about this, folks, we have people who are not loyal. In, just because you live in America doesn't mean that everybody's loyal uh, to the patriot side. Not everyone's a, fa a fan of independence or separation from England. I mean, think about it. After the siege of Boston ended in March of 1776, a thousand loyalists leave, never to come back to Boston. They go to Halifax, Nova Scotia to start a new life. Other loyalists go to Canada. Some go to the Caribbean. Some go to England. There were African Americans who were loyal to the crown, and they went as far as Africa and established settlements in, in what is known as the Sierra Leone uh, colony. So loyalty, just because you have a loyalty to something, it does not always mean it's for the better. Loyalties are personal. So... Do any of the colonies um, take up what Thomas Paine um, was advocating with regards to loyalty oath? Yes, 
two of the 13 colonies do, most notably Pennsylvania and North Carolina. Each colony's legislative body went about enacting laws requiring residents to take up loyalty oaths. In other words, we want to know whom you really are loyal to. If you're not loyal to uh, America in a time of war, then you need to go somewhere else in exile where you will be welcomed based upon your personal loyalties. If people in Pennsylvania and North Carolina did not uh, take up loyalty oaths, what, uh, what were, what were uh, consequences that could have uh, resulted? For one, um, individuals would have been forced to have uh, forfeited their personal property, that is to surrender um, uh, whatever um, valuable possessions, including their uh, land, as well as state citizenship. Okay, you can be a citizen of a state, but if you don't take up the right loyalties, then you would have to forego, um, forego being a, a citizen of either Pennsylvania or North Carolina. Prior to the fall of 1777, had Thomas Paine been on the trail of an American individual's activities considered suspicious? Who do you think Thomas Paine might have been on the trail I'll give you some choices. Was he on Alexander Hamilton's trail? Was he on Benedict Arnold's trail? Or was he on Silas Dean's trail? The answer is choice C. He was on Silas Dean's uh, trail. Silas Dean hails from Connecticut. Silas Dean is um, a very well-to-do man um, who has made a lot of money in the... Um, merchant uh, banking industry. Dean has apparently has been engaging in numerous improper business practices where it turns out he was found to be um, profiting from purchases of arms and ammunition from France. Secret dealings, it sounds like, folks. These um, actions, besides profiting from the purchases of arms and ammunition from France, also included the recruitment of French officers whom were promised uh, commissions in the Continental Army. Here's the ironic thing, folks. Okay, Silas Dean is telling these French officers, hey, you need to get on one of the first boats immediately to come over to America. And once you get there, you just tell uh, General Washington that, um, that you were promised uh, a commission to serve in the Army. And he'll take care of you. I don't know what Silas Dean's thinking, but he's obviously uh, made a mistake. He's gone behind the commander in chief's back. Now, of course, we don't have a president. We don't have the official modern-day title of president of the United States, but George Washington is the commander of the Continental Army. And should you go behind his back and do something without his consent or permission, no, you don't turn your back on the general, most notably uh, George Washington. But Silas Dean, um, this will come back and get him. But once the um, French um, officers come to America, they are denied commissions, simply in part because General Washington himself had not been made aware of any formal plans behind foreign assistance in the form of alliances to financial aid. Yes, our ports are welcome to nations besides England, for supplying us with essential provisions, but 
George Washington has not officially come out and said that I want France and I want Spain to be my partners in the war. He knows that the French are itching to get to get revenge on England from the aftermath of the Seven Years' War. He knows that the Spanish still have large swaths of uh, territory, um, most notably along the Mississippi River. But Washington needs to be consulted upon all um, ideas and proposals when it comes to alliances. It's one thing to have an ally, but you better make sure that the, um, that the, ally or, or the allies themselves are partnering with you being, in this case, the uh, young United States uh, Republic, the young United States nation, for all the right reasons. Otherwise, how can an alliance or alliances function? All right, here's another important question to uh, think about. In the months after January 1777, did the Continental Army find itself once again in a bind where forces were on the run? I'll think about that here for a moment, folks. I'm back. And you know, uh, just real quick, a couple of days ago it was warm where I live, and now there's snow on the ground. Crazy weather. But you know what? I like seeing snow on the ground. However, I'm glad that I was not on Interstate 95 uh, last night. Uh, north of where I live, um, people were stranded on the roads throughout the night. Many did not have essential provisions like blankets uh, to, to have to food and, um, and beverage. Think about it. It's so easy to take certain things for granted, and all of a sudden when you're in a bind and you don't have those right provisions, it's like going um, backwards in unimaginable ways. It's almost like reverting back to the... Um, Back to uh, Christmas night of 1776, when many of Washington's men's when many of Washington's men um, did not have um, adequate clothing. In other words, some of them were um, walking in the snow, and their shoes weren't even fully uh, their toes weren't fully covered. That's how bad it was, folks. So let's keep in mind that uh, our forefathers, yes, they made plenty of sacrifices for us, but even the men who fought uh, to um, keep us free from tyranny it's many of those men were not they fought and they weren't um how you call it they, they may not have had the most formal of clothing in the most trying times but yet they still pulled off the unthinkable to keep the flames of independence alive when it was least expected so my question to you is, in the months after January 1777, did the Continental Army find itself once again in a bind where forces were on the run? Yes, they, yes, they were. Up north, British forces led by General John Burgoyne led a force of 7,700 British and, Hesh and Hessian troops. Oh, those Hessians, they, they're still sticking around, folks. Burgoyne led a force of 7,700 British and Hessian troops from Canada southward into New York's Lake Champlain, only to force the American troops further south, closer to uh, Saratoga, which is just north of Albany. This is a big deal here, folks, because as American forces are being forced to retreat further southward, there are two rivers um, that intersect one another. They're not far apart. 
but these rivers could also um, play a key role in uh, who controls um, the waterways. Either the British or the um, or the Continental Army will control them, being the Mohawk and the Hudson Rivers. The Mohawk uh, River or the Mohawk uh, Valley is uh, central New York State where uh, Syracuse is and the, outs and the cities that um, are on the outskirts like Rome and Utica, Thandara, uh, just to name a few of, of, of cities in uh, central uh, New York. And of course, along the Hudson River, you've got Albany, you've got West Point, um, and uh, Saratoga as well. So just to name um, some cities with some key uh, geographical line linings. But prior to and just around August of 1777, uh, there is good news to report here, folks, that the Continental Army's northern campaign will see a change, or rather a, a change for the better that will lead to a great morale boost. What's the first big morale boost? It doesn't happen in um, New York. It happens in the further in the furthermost northern uh, colony of uh, colonial America, or which is now the, or, or what we now know after 1776 as the newly created United States. The northernmost colony of the 13 is New Hampshire, but fishermen in Portsmouth, New Hampshire, spotted a French ship, the first of three ships that would make its way in, being the 300-ton Mercure, which pro provided essential provisions, and I think it's fair to say that Connecticut's uh, Silas Dean had a lot to do with this. So we, on one hand, uh, we could thank Silas Dean for doing what he had done, even though he may not have gone through the proper proper channels of uh, of getting um, of getting the um, formal consent from above, being from General uh, Washington. But this ship brought in twelve thousand muskets. Did you hear that, folks? Twelve thousand muskets. That's a very very um, hefty. Um, donation right there how about 50 brass cannon and along and what do you need uh, to go what what do you need to have in those muskets and cannon folks powder if you don't have powder then how are they going to uh, fire and then of course you got to have ammunition well of course muskets are ammunition well i mean muskets you, ha you got to have ammunition to put into the muskets there this um, the Mercure also um, had a thousand tent, a thousand tents and clothes for ten thousand men, folks. These are huge um, essentials that cannot be taken for granted, and they will be of ever, of ever uh, significant um, usage, because by August sixteenth. The Battle of Bennington in present-day Vermont takes place. Bennington at the time might as well have been considered New York, but remember, folks, there are two uh, colonies that um, are fighting over present-day Vermont. And who are those? Well, we named one of them New York. The other is New Hampshire. So let's keep in mind, folks, there is no... Vermont won't become a state until 1791. So in the American Revolution... It's New York and New Hampshire that are fighting over who has the rights to present-day Vermont. But on August 16th, the Battle of Bennington in present-day Vermont takes place 
where Continental forces under Major General John Stark's leadership, and he was commanding a, a group of about 2,000 to 2,500 um, soldiers, they defeated a British force, British force of 1,000 men. You would hope that if you have a force that is 1,000 to 1,500 more than the enemy has, you better hope that you win. However, history has proven that sometimes the, um, the force that has the less number of men have often been the ones that have won the battle. So just because you have more men than the opponent, there's no automatic guarantee that you'll win. It all comes down to um, discipline, military leadership, and the right strategical approaches, just to name a few of the many factors that could go into winning a battle. So Gen Major General John Stark, and he is from New Hampshire, his leadership under um, under a command where he uh, led of 2,000 to 2,500 men were responsible for defeating a British force of 1,000 men, killing 200 and capturing 700. This, the victory at Bennington helped reinvigorate American forces' morale as their next journey sent them south to Saratoga, which is uh, north of Albany, but not far. But the big, the, big surprise, the big prize coming up for the Northern uh, Continental Army and the, army, the Continental Army for the Northern Campaign will be Saratoga. However, there is another front just to the south, and it involves General Washington's forces. And, you know, I, I would like to say that things are going well for them, but they're not. Not in the same way that um, Major General John Stark um, was able to achieve at Bennington. General Washington's forces are struggling. They are struggling on the outskirts of Philadelphia to where British and Hessian forces went about wreaking all forms of havoc and chasing the Continentals from all directions, along with closing in from three sides, from the south, the west, and the north. Not a whole lot of room uh, for Washington's uh, men to escape and regroup, it sounds like. While Washington's forces faced great uncertainty, Thomas Paine resorted once again to bolstering American morale by writing Crisis Four, which attacked the British, which attacked British General William Howe and his attitude towards the American people. While writing Crisis Four, Paine himself tried rallying the troops in Philadelphia like he had done so at Trenton. However, um, the success he had at Trenton was not was not anywhere close to being meant to be at Philadelphia. September 19, 1777, Congress once again fled Philadelphia. And many in Congress, along with many in Philadelphia whom were um, loyal to the cause for uh, American independence from England, were forced to take many state house essentials because they knew it would just be a short matter of time before the British would um, take control of the state house and not only set up its uh, operation headquarters for conducting um, future uh, war um, battles, but also for um, how they would like to envision the future once their subjects, being the colonies, come to their senses and surrender. Of course, that's not going to happen, but the British have this grand strategy in mind as to how they're going to um, 
reconquer um, their subjects and make them once again submit to their um, authority. So here, uh, members of Congress and um, many outside of Congress loyal to the uh, American cause for independence are scrambling left and right to, to take as many state house essentials from falling into enemy hands. Congress has a, um, luckily Congress has a game plan on where they're going to convene. They, they're going to go 80 miles west of Philadelphia to Lancaster County, or what we know as Lancaster, Pennsylvania, or what we now know as Amish country, 80 miles west of Philadelphia. They didn't take this item to Lancaster, PA, but I, when my wife and I were in Philadelphia, uh, we learned that, um, that it, of course, it was nowhere close to being called the Independence or the Liberty Bell at the time, but the State House Bell was um, taken by um, members of Congress and, um, and citizens, and it was taken uh, about an hour or two north of Philadelphia, uh, where it was secured at a church where the British never got its hands on the, um, on the bell. And I think it's fair to say if the British had gotten their hands on the State House bell, that they probably would have uh, melted it and turned it into lead for musket ball purposes. The only reason I say that is because um, Americans, most notably at Bowling Green Park on July 9th of 1776, um, tore down a statue of King George III, and a man by the name of Oliver Wolcott of Connecticut, whom signed the Declaration of Independence, came up with a grand strategy. He took all of the um, metal parts of, to King George III, whatever he could find, of this dismantled statue, and had all the parts that he could find placed on stagecoaches and transported back to Connecticut, where he went about assembling a shop of um, people whom went about uh, converting all of these um, pieces of the statue and had them, those pieces melted down into lead that resulted in musket balls that came into significant use at the eventual Battle of Saratoga. Well, what's significant about Friday, September 26, 1777? Well, a week after, um, a week after uh, American uh, forces, or rather I should say members of Congress, began uh, fleeing Philadelphia for Lancaster, the British, uh, British forces, being around 1,500 strong, took possession of Philadelphia, most notably the State House. But it wasn't just the State House that really was impacted. The surrender of Philadelphia, being the nation's capital, left everyone in Congress shocked, along with the majority of the American people, considering that Philadelphia, being the nation's capital, had been an essential political, cultural, and social hub. Is it fair to say that the um, surrender of Philadelphia, not just the surrender of Philadelphia, but the Capitol, or the State House building, was kind of like a 9-11 of its time? I would say so. I mean, the building wasn't destroyed, but it just fell into enemy's hand, into the enemy's hands. And now you've got to wonder, when will we ever be able to get it out of the enemy's hands? Were some members of Congress skeptical about General Washington's leadership after Philadelphia had fallen into British hands. Yes, there were some, there were um, a handful of uh, congressional members who did become skeptical. For one, they, be they became skeptical after the um, debacles at Brandywine and Germantown, 
for those of you who want to know where Brandywine is, it's um, it's in um, I want to say um, it's in one of the counties on the outskirts of Philadelphia. Uh, there are four counties that um, that lie on the outskirts of Philadelphia. There's Bucks, Montgomery, Chester, and uh, Delaware County. I want to say Brandywine is in uh, Chester, and um, there is a town not far from Brandywine called Chad's Ford. So Brandywine was one of those battles, from what I know, um, where Washington's forces did have some, uh, what do you call it, moments of success, but they were short-lived moments of success where, um, where it turns out that the weather played a... Um, significant factor in um what you, in in keeping men from um from going in the wrong men went in different directions they weren't um aligned properly with their units they um got confused i know i'm talking simple talk here but the bottom line is is that to sum it up in a nutshell germantown and brandywine were battles where there were moments of successes but they were short-lived they were battles where, you know, we did everything we could to give it our best, but it just wasn't enough. And we have to remember, too, folks, that even the weather, weather alone, played havoc on both sides. And even at Germantown, there were moments where the British were delayed by a few hours, and it did keep um, the Americans from being annihilated. There were moments where the Americans um, had the same thing happen to them, where an advance was halted because of the weather allowing the enemy, being the British, to um, to cross over um, without being caught. So the weather, for better or worse, can uh, make or break. It can benefit one side and, and negatively impact the, um, the other um, opposition, the other force. But then you have men like Virginia's Richard Henry Lee who begin favoring British-born General Horatio Gates, and believe it or not, folks, we have a British-born general who is on the Continental Army side. He is also a veteran of the Seven Years' War, Horatio Gates. Many now see Horatio Gates as the man who ought to replace General Washington, largely in part because Gates's men achieved an improbable victory by defeating General John Burgoyne's forces at Saratoga, New York, where momentum was riding high. And it's not so much that momentum was riding high at Saratoga, but the victory at Saratoga um, and I will get to this here shortly, uh, had major implications even for international reasons. Whereas some members of Congress continued uh, criticizing Washington's leadership, Thomas Paine took up his pen once again by writing a fifth crisis essay defending Washington. But at the same time, while he was trying to defend Washington, he became primarily more focused on the Continental Army's dire encampment situation at Valley Forge. And he had every reason to be. This was what we might call the starving time, or not so much a starving time, but the, but the trying time, even worse than Trenton. Think about it, folks. The, the, the Continental Army now, in, in late winter of 1777 going into 1778, they're once again facing another uh, trying time that will either make or break the cause for independence. 
The encampment is comprised of misery on all fronts, from troop hunger, thirst, frostbite, filth, despair, and there will be men who will die at Valley Forge. People, we just don't realize just how dire the circumstances are. Here we are trying to to defeat the mightiest empire in the world, and it can't be based on one battle. But for all the highs that we're experiencing, we are also experiencing unprecedented lows. There just doesn't seem to be enough of, of middle ground to keep everybody together, even when the going gets tough. But as for the victory at Saratoga, which is good news, it's not just good news, it's it's more than good news because the victory at did the American victory at Saratoga enable France to acknowledge the United States as an independent nation along with becoming an ally in the war against England? Yes. February 2nd, 1778 saw French and American representatives in Paris sign treaties pledging joint defense uh, pledging joint defense on one another's behalf against attacks from third-party nations. Third-party nations who may not have any, what do you call it, territorial uh, claims to, in America, but third-party nations who might be um, wanting to um, take up sympathies with England and perhaps um, and perhaps uh, work uh, work under them, but by doing so in a um, secretive manner. Benjamin Franklin, America's first minister, would go about representing his nation overseas. Okay, so Benjamin Franklin, folks, is the one who is in France, and he helped uh, persuade the French in the aftermath of defeating, um, in, the, in the aftermath of the Continental Army's defeat at Saratoga, he was the one that finally was, be able, was able to persuade them that, hey, we're, we're the real deal now. Well, what, what became unique about Crisis 7? A lot of crisis essays here, folks, but hey, look, this is what Thomas Paine's got to do. He's got to keep on writing because somebody's got to keep on writing. Someone's got to keep inspiring the troops and the American people, even in a time of crisis. Thomas Paine in Crisis 7 centered his focus directly on the people of England, poking fun at them. He asked questions in his essay like the following. Why? You have not conquered us. Who or what has prevented you? You have had every opportunity. Your fleets and armies have arrived in America without an accident. Well, here's how I interpret it. Hopefully it'll make sense to you all. Three years after the shots had been fired at Lexington and Concord, a war against the mother country is still raging on. For every defeat the Continental Army had endured, their determination remained steadfast, resulting in victories that lifted morale when it appeared the flames of independence were nearly extinguished. Trenton, Princeton, Bennington, and now Saratoga. You know, some people would say, well, four victories, that doesn't seem like a lot, but hey, look, four victories is better than none, and and those four victories leading up to this point are what's keeping this uh, flame for independence alive. Yes, we may have um, killed more men at Bunker Hill, 
yes, the British may have lost more men at Bunker Hill, but we have to remember in 1775, we had not officially declared our full separation from England. But Bunker Hill also represented um, a situation where there was no going back. Many believed it, but others still held out. By the time Crisis 7 was finished, a French fleet of 16 warships entered into Delaware Bay. So now the French folks are really beginning to fulfill their promise that they do want to be on our side. They want to get back at England because of how England... um, They want to get back at England. They want to stick it to them, knowing that they were forced to uh, have to surrender all that territory along um, west of the Appalachians and Ohio and along the St. Lawrence River and um, areas into into what we know now as uh, present-day Michigan. Were there members of Congress whom favored the idea of benefiting from financial dealings brokered between governments? Aren't there members of Congress today whom fav- who like benefiting from financial dealings involving um, governments um, from, uh, well, from foreign governments? Yes, and that can be seen as scandalous. More often it, it is scandalous where it results in um, resignations. But in a time of crisis like this, um, men are, are not interested in uh, scandals. The last thing they don't need are scandals. But yes, most notably men like Robert Morris and John Jay, to name a few, uh, considering these such men were powerful merchant bankers whom controlled Congress based upon their status, you know, connections, whom they know. If they have a lot of powerful connections, then why ruin those connections? Why burn the bridges? If more bridges get burnt, then how can Congress function in a time of crisis? Even if, even if the actions are deemed questionable. Men like Thomas Paine and Virginia's Patrick Henry remained vehemently opposed to profiteering in times of war, but they were in the minority on this issue. So in other words, there is a greater majority of men who, whom see nothing wrong with profiteering in times of war, and those men will prevail over the minority like Thomas Paine and Patrick Henry, who don't find this uh, practice to be uh, appropriate. They find it rather unethical. Uh, Did Thomas Paine make any donations financially? He did. But but in his eyes, did he find that his donations were more ethical than what others were doing? Yes. He went about donating a vast wealth amounts from sales on common sense and the crisis essays to America. In other words, he was donating his money that he made off of common sense and along with the crisis essays to help fund this war, but by doing so without um, means of profiteering. There were some who applauded him for doing this, but there were others that ridiculed him and who were those men that ridiculed um, Payne's um, donations? Robert Morris, Silas Dean, and John Jay. Thomas Paine received criticism from those outside of Congress whom opposed his prying into colleagues' personal business affairs regarding profiteer, regarding profiteering, 
and Payne also became a victim of physical assault. There were people on the streets of Philadelphia who did assault him, assault Thomas Payne because they didn't like the fact that he was sticking his nose where it didn't belong. Is it fair to say that Thomas Payne might be the equivalent of a modern-day whistleblower? Yes. You know, Thomas Payne's trying to make sure that everyone is held accountable, but by doing so in a manner that's not going to jeopardize the well-being of a young nation and maybe jeopardize the well-being of our new alliance partnership with France. What happened to Thomas Paine in 1779? Am I going to tell you all a good thing or a bad thing? Well, I wished I could tell you it was a good thing, but I hate to tell you this. It's uh, bad news. Congress relieved Thomas Paine of his duties as Secretary of Committee on Foreign Affairs. Do you think there was a uh, breaking news alert um, app regarding that in 1779? No. But for some, it did come as a shock. For others, they were actually relieved. After being dismissed, Payne himself felt as though nobody wanted anything to do with him. I could feel, I could feel how he, um, I could feel his hurt. You know, we've all been rejected at times, and then we have to ask ourselves, does anybody want anything to do with us anymore? There are different degrees of hurt out there. For Thomas Paine, he's laying everything on the line, but yet he doesn't feel as though he's being valued for who he is. Is it like that in Congress today, where there are members of Congress who go above and beyond to do everything they can that's ethical and right, only to be shot down by those whom are only looking after themselves and the interests of those whom brought them into um, Congress to represent them on their behalf? Yes. That's a double-edged sword. It's a nasty one. Did Robert Morris have it out for Thomas Paine? Yes. He referred to Paine as a man of lower-tier status. Payne, I mean, uh, Morris felt as though Thomas Paine was more concerned about writing works that focused on an individual being his own self in terms of how an individual could overcome obstacles based upon um, how he or she was uh, treated by the institution from above whom was of a higher um, dominant force. Think about like a monarch. Uh, Robert Morris also um, viewed Payne as being one whom constantly stuck his nose in affairs that didn't involve him whatsoever. Although Morris strongly disliked Payne, he did share uh, the same views with Thomas Payne on one thing. Religious freedom. Along with full-scale independence from England, so I take it back two things. Those two things are better than none. I think it's fair to say that uh, Robert Morris like Thomas Paine, felt that uh, church and state should be separate from one another. The church shouldn't be telling the state how to uh, go about governing the people, and the state should not be telling the church how to go about um, preaching to its members uh, within the congregation. Robert Morris, however, favors voting rights to male property owners, whereas Thomas Paine advocates equality for all men and women, regardless of where they stand in the greater society. 
Well, we're getting uh, near the end of this uh, segment, folks. Um, it's been an interesting one, to say the least. But then again, I don't recall a time where there was not an interesting segment per an individual podcast, regardless of the topic. Whom succeeded John Hancock of Massachusetts as Congress's president? Why is that important, folks? Well, I'll tell you why it's important, because for one, um, it has nothing bad to do with John Hancock. But the man who succeeds him actually likes, you know, likes Thomas Paine. He's known Thomas Paine for quite some time. As a matter of fact, he even um, shows compassion for Paine, even in Paine's most trying times in this present moment. His name is Henry Lawrence of South Carolina. And there is a place in South Carolina called Lawrence, South Carolina, up in the uh, upper part of the state. Uh, Lawrence is uh, located near Greenville, Spartanburg, Union, uh, Calpens, uh, 96, uh, Fort Mill, uh, Rock Hill. Uh, so when you think of those areas, think of uh, northwest uh, South Carolina. Henry Lawrence, however, resigns from his post in the aftermath of how Thomas Paine got treated. Why did he resign? Well, Lawrence admitted that he, had that he himself had advised Thomas Paine of all necessary matters. He kept him in the loop. He wasn't doing it to please Thomas Paine. He felt that Thomas Paine had a right to know about everything that was going on. He knew the sacrifices that Paine himself had made, not just from, um, mostly from all of his writings that inspired not just troops, but the greater American people in this um, in these times of uh, challenging circumstances. Henry uh, Lawrence and Thomas Paine became friends by meeting one another through the American Philosophical Society. So that's how long their friendship dates back to. Although Thomas Paine resigned, he took whatever money that was left over of his and he gave it to Congress. And that money went towards supplying arms and ammunition for the Continental Army. Another generous deed, another generous act on Thomas Paine's part. But sadly, as he left Congress and walked onto Philadelphia streets, Thomas Paine now is described as destitute, a.k.a. poor. Thomas Paine went from, you know, having... A lot of money to now being destitute. Did he flaunt his money? No. But he was trying to use his money in the right way to fund this war. Yes, other men were funding their money, but Thomas Paine wasn't profiting off of this, folks. He didn't want to profit. It wasn't about him. It was about the greater cause. But not everybody saw it that way. Do you think there will be hope for pain somewhere down the road? I would hope so, but how will we know? Well, when I'm on the air again next, we're going to learn about where Thomas Paine goes from here, knowing now that he has become uh, destitute, or rather, I should say, poor. Well, we've covered a lot of ground, and it's it was great to uh, be back on the air with you all, considering this was my uh, first podcast for the start of 2022. And uh, thank you again for listening. As always, you guys are uh, terrific listeners. 
and uh, continue to get the word out on um, Anchor Podcast. For one, it's free. Secondly, the opportunities are limitless. And lastly, when you come to Anchor, um, the sky's the limit. There's no uh, turning back once you get going. Um, the results um, go beyond the sky's ceiling. So that's how great Anchor is. Thank you again for listening and look forward to being back on the air again soon. Take care and have a great evening.